CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's good to have all of you with us on a rainy, chilly day, at least in metro Atlanta. I haven't looked at the weather across the state, but I suspect that it's not a whole lot better uh, wherever you live across Georgia. Um, I want to, before we do anything else, uh, give a big shout out and a thanks to uh, Tamar Hallerman, who filled in for me yesterday. Uh, I had had an appointment that I couldn't miss in the morning. And uh, she was great to fill in. I got a chance to listen uh, to the show. She was terrific. And I know a lot of you thought so as well. And it was great to have you give your feedback, uh, telling her how much you enjoyed her and letting all of us know uh, that you did too. So, uh, Tamar, thank you very much. And uh, I have to say I'm also glad to be back with all of you today. I missed uh, doing this show yesterday. Um, So as we get started, I want to share something with you, a note from our senior producer, Amelia Brock. She wrote to say that her friend Jarrett posted a voting selfie. I guess he voted early, obviously. And um, he had his sticker on, the the, the ubiquitous now uh, I have voted sticker, the peach sticker. And uh, (laughs) he added a caption uh, to the photo saying, all right, exclamation point, I voted, leave me alone. No more texts, no more calls. I did the thing. Uh, and she said he added some expletives, uh, expletives that we're not going to uh, use on the air today. But with early voting underway, it does make you wonder if people are going to start posting uh, more and more photographs of themselves, selfies in which they essentially not only show their pride for having voted, but warn people, please leave me alone. We're sick of all uh, this. Um, so with that in mind, I want to talk about where we stand on early voting in, in just a moment. But first, let me introduce the panel for today. Of course, on Wednesdays, Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us. And we're glad you're here again today, Greg. Greg, people should know that you join us under really interesting circumstances. A, a couple of times now, you've done the show from your car as you waited for an event to campaign event to start, and you're doing that right now. Uh, are, where are you? What are you waiting for? I'm at an early voting site, uh, you know, j- very apropos of what you just of your opener. Um, and Senator Leffler <laughs> is voting for herself right now, and uh, she's shortly going to come out and take some questions. Uh, the first time we've heard from her, at least in Metro Atlanta, taking questions in, in, a, in a long while. So uh, we'll be uh, I'll be quickly going and joining that scrum, and then coming right back and reporting on those on the latest developments. Oh, I love it. It's like real-time uh, reporting. That's wonderful. Thank you for joining us uh, 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 today, uh, Greg. Riley Bunch is back with us. She's the Georgia State House reporter for CNHI News. Her articles appear in uh, newspapers in smaller cities across the state of Georgia. Riley, how are you holding up in the middle of this runoff election, which I know you've spent a lot of time covering? You know, doing good. It doesn't seem like there's too much news to cover nowadays for us in Georgia. I just kind of kick back every day and hang out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
Well, congratulations uh, on that. I hope your bosses aren't listening today, but they know that isn't true. Thanks for being with us. Tia Mitchell is here as well. She, of course, is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, uh, you told us before the show went on the air, and we just heard it on the NPR News, you are preparing for what could be a snowstorm moving into Washington, D.C. today. I hope you're set for this, Tia. I'm all set. I'm uh, got a big pot of chili in the fridge, and we're stocked up. So we'll see how it goes. Well, I hope you're ready to take some of that chili over to uh, the negotiators uh, in the House and Senate who are trying to work out uh, with only a couple of days left a deal to uh, create to get a new COVID relief package that will be signed into law by the president. And I know you're going to talk to us a little about where things stand uh, during the show today. We're also joined by Adam Van Brimmer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. It's good to have you back with us, Adam. What's the weather like? Down? Are you experiencing this kind of chilly, rainy weather down there, too? No, it's always beautiful here in Savannah. Uh, it, it's a little cooler than normal, <laughs> but, uh, but no rain or anything else. And I want to challenge Greg's assertion that Kelly Leffler's voting for herself. My guess is that she's probably doing a write-in vote. And just because she didn't recognize on the ballot, so she's writing in radical, liberal, <laughs> Raphael Warnock, and then checking the box. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Editorial editor Adam Van Brimmer shows us where he's coming from already yeah, in today's show. We're glad you're here. That's fine. We like that. All right. Let's let, let us look, in fact, at the early voting numbers right now. According to Georgia Votes, uh, which I just pulled up a little while ago, as of about five o'clock yesterday afternoon, uh, about 482,800 people have uh, cast early votes. Um, 315,000 of them are mail-in ballots. 168,000 are early votes. Um, so we're, it's, and, and voting applications, we've got a million four people who have applied to vote by mail. Greg, uh, as you think about the numbers, we're seeing a big appetite for people to turn out again despite the fact that runoff elections don't often bring us a big turnout, yes? Yeah, I mean, it's going to shatter runoff electoral uh, turnout records for sure. Um, it won't reach the 5 billion people who voted in the presidential, of course, but campaigns are starting to begin to think that it could be 3.5 to 4 million, which is a huge number and reflects all the sort of voter enthusiasm. And, it, and, 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 and you know, seriously, it reflects... Um, how Georgia voters are recognizing what, how critical these Senate runoffs are. I mean, for control of the U.S. Senate, it's not lost upon the electorate here that that the fate of Joe Biden's first two years of, in office and his legislative agenda is on the line here. I'm pretty interested in the fact, Tia, that right now, according to the demographic breakdown that Georgia Votes reports, uh, uh, some 33-plus percent of the early voters, one way or the other, are uh, African-American. Uh, that's a good sign for Democrats. If, if really the African-American vote goes over 30 percent, that gives them a big head start in trying to win these two Senate seats, yes? Yes, and, um, you know, we've been saying all along that Republicans have been handicapped by their competing messaging, you know, 
And quite frankly, if there was a competition, the messaging that was winning, that has been winning, is that message that the general election was stolen from Donald Trump and there was fraud and there was waste and the uh, mail-in voting system is not reliable. That was the, the dominant message of from the Republican side. And yes, they attempted to also kind of slide in there, but we need you to participate in this runoff, but we need you to vote for Leffler and Purdue. And um, I think what we're seeing is that Democrats had a message that was able to engage and activate their base in a way that Republicans are still trying to get there. Well, that's an interesting comment to make because, of course, this entire election is going to be based on who turns out their voters. It's not about persuasion anymore. Uh, Adam and then Riley, I'll bring you in. Adam, another good sign, perhaps, although a little bit more questionable, is that right now uh, women represent about 54 plus a little bit more than 54 percent of the voters who have uh, uh, turned out. But what's interesting about that, Adam, is although the female vote in the November 3rd election, the presidential race, certainly was an advantage for Joe Biden, we just really don't know where particularly uh, suburban women are going to come down. Have they really become Democrats and will they vote for Warnock? and uh, Ossoff, or are they still on the fence, and could they turn back to Republicans? We just don't know, Adam. Adam, are you muted? I was muted. muted. Sorry about that. Uh, yes, obviously, the, the um, Purdue got more votes than Ossoff did in the fall, and I think that uh, that will that's going to be the real test here in January is, is does that hold? Does There were a lot of people that would cross over to vote against Trump, but we're still in line with Purdue, at least enough to keep him on top of the voting margin. And I think the same thing held true in the other race where between Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, uh, they got, I'm probably getting this wrong, I think all the Republicans together got over 50%. So just because the the, uh, women, particularly suburban women, were willing to cross over and vote against Trump doesn't, to me, does not hold in terms of the Senate race the question is, Is have they been put off or energized one way or the other by the messaging coming out of both camps here in the time sense? I would Riley, what's in. your sense? Yeah, I, I would kind of point out another number that we haven't talked about yet, which is the new, the younger voters, which there's a lot of um, mm. talk in the Democratic Party swirling around that there were thousands of voters that could not vote in the general election, but will have come of age by the time the January runoff rolls around. And I think that's an important number to watch, um, because in terms of turning out the Democratic base, the younger voters are really going to play a big role in getting them some extra votes that they missed in the general. So I would keep an eye on that younger voter percentage as things move along. I think, by the way, speaking of I'm not necessarily younger voters, but, but the fact you talked about voters who didn't uh, show up on November 3rd, I believe the number right now is we have about 85,000 new voters who are, have, have uh, voted one way or another. And, and already Republicans, uh, Riley, are beginning to uh, uh, show suspicious signs about that. What, they're already starting to use the same arguments they've been using about the November election to say, who are these 85,000 people? Well, apparently, Riley, there are people who really want to vote. Well, absolutely. I think the perfect example of that is in Clayton County, the district that pushed 
um, or the county that pushed uh, Joe Biden ahead in the general election, although it was kind of this decisive moment and all, all that had great turnout and push, there were still nearly half of the county that didn't vote. It, so, vote. so that was thousands of votes that Democrats missed out on. And that really is the key is turning out these you know, portions of counties that you know are going to be Democratic, but are going to push them ahead in the runoff. Um, Tia, I want to uh, actually, um, you know, every now and then we, we get messages that uh, we get a lot of messages during the show from our listeners. And every now and then I think it's important to uh, pay attention to them. So I just got a message from someone who's listening who said it's about time you talk about suburban voters and what you really mean, white voters. But in fact, that's not the case at all anymore in Georgia, is it, Tia? No, I mean, I to the listener's point, there is a difference sometimes between suburban white voters and black suburban voters and Latino or Asian suburban voters. So we can be specific when we talk about suburban voters, but no, it is no longer the reality that suburban voters as a block are even, you know, majority white in the, if we're talking about the Atlanta area. You know, um, because it is so diverse. And let's talk about Gwinnett County. Gwinnett is a majority minority county, if you will. And that's a suburban county, which is different than Cobb County, which is more heavily white. We know DeKalb is a suburban county that is majority black, um, particularly when we talk about South DeKalb. So, you know, there are nuances even when we talk about suburban voters. And that's something that Joe Biden was able to take advantage of, Democrats were able to take advantage of in the general election, and that's the coalition they're working really hard to rebuild for this runoff. Yeah, I, I mean, it is po- it's quite possible that what the message meant was uh, when you talk about who might be the wh- female swing voters in the suburbs, it might be more likely to be white uh, women who may b- go back to the Republicans. So I, I take that point, but I just want to make it clear when we talk about suburban women these days, we're talking about a much more diverse group of people, as you pointed out um, just now, Tia. Riley, uh, Greg Bluestein, by the way, has just jumped from his car and is on his way to uh, interview, he hopes, Kelly Leffler, who's just coming out of her early voting location. And Greg will come back and join us again with uh, uh, some news about what he asked her about and what she had to say. Uh, but uh, Riley, you and Greg were both at the event that Joe Biden held yesterday for Leffler, I mean, for uh, Warnock and Ossoff. And uh, it was notable as a starting point, Riley, that he came to Georgia the day after the Electoral College said, yep, you're the next president of the United States. Talk to us a little bit about what the message was that Biden brought. So I keep going back to a line that he said on November 3rd, night of the election. I think it said, quote, we're still in the game in Georgia, even though that's not what we expected and how far we have come since that moment. You know, he was in Georgia yesterday pushing um, a very uh, more joyful platform that he's joking about that he won the election three times here. And it really is, you know, about turning out the base and encouraging people to vote for John Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock as our Republican senators are still kind of on this um, Trump campaign. You know, they, they were they have Pence coming, but a lot of their rallies of more high profile uh, Surrogate talk about how Trump has lost the election, and less about 
the runoff. So yesterday when Joe Biden came, there were, you know, high profile Atlanta mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Stacey Abrams was there. It was really a message of we need to do this again. We need to show that this wasn't a fluke, that Georgia is really blue. And that was a message that they were pushing in that rally yesterday. You know, Adam, I know you want to jump in and let me add a layer and then you respond to all of it. Um, You know, we've said on this show a number of times that because this entire campaign on all four of the candidates has been driven by negative advertising and most people don't get to go out and hear the speeches that they're giving, um, it feels like there's no issues in the race at all. But we should point out that Biden, in talking about uh, wanting to bring two Democrats in to give the Democrats a majority, uh, says, you know, his agenda includes overhauling the voting rights laws, expanding health care access, and passing tax increases on the wealthiest Americans. So, as well as he wants to do a huge infrastructure package. So, there are issues that we're not hearing because we're overwhelmed with uh, attack TV ads. Adam? Yeah, Biden has done a really good job since the election of of really focusing on one unity, being that unity candidate, saying he's going to bridge the gap, and and two, focusing on the pandemic. So it's it's no coincidence that the day after the Electoral College uh, basically formalizes his presidency that he comes back on the campaign trail. And it's going to be... It'll be real interesting to see over these next few weeks how active and how outspoken he is in terms of these runoffs. Obviously, he recognizes the importance of the runoffs. He recognizes that that he can move the needle to a certain extent. Uh, I also don't think he necessarily wants to get out there and, and really drive any kind of partisan divisiveness. That would go against what he's basically been campaigning on for, for several months now. So, T.A., Here's one of the things that's interesting about the Biden visit, I think, and you uh, uh, help us understand this. There was a time, of course, not that long ago, when Georgia Democrats ran as far as they could away from national Democratic figures uh, because they were seen to be too liberal for Southerners, for Georgians, uh, and they didn't really want the help of, uh, of the national Democrats. Now, it is true that in 2008, um, Jim Martin, who was running in a Senate runoff race, really, really wanted to get the president down here. But that was kind of an exceptional situation. And even while some Democrats felt that their more conservative sense of what it meant to be a Democrat would be tarnished by the national folks, at the same time, uh, the National Democratic Party didn't want to spend time in Georgia because they thought it was a waste of their money and their energy. And look where we are today, Tia. Yeah, it's interesting when um, Greg Bluestein um, wrote about that last week, I actually kind of messaged him separately and asked him to kind of fill me in because that's an aspect of Georgia politics that kind of precedes me. And I wanted more background to understand why was that was the case. And he graciously explained it to me. Um, but I think the difference is um, Democrats, Of course, we've been talking about this new playbook, this playbook of Democrats, where they want every vote. And if you want every vote, that means you've got to broaden your coalition and who you bring into your tent. And quite frankly, it's just the Democratic side of the same coin that Republicans have been doing for many more years. You know, Republicans don't shy away from the most extreme positions in their party, for better or for worse, a lot of times. 
And so you'll see Kelly Leffler welcoming Marjorie Taylor Greene to the campaign trail, for example, even though she represents a much more conservative, a much more extreme kind of uh, branch of the Republican Party. And, of course, so far, the Democrats that have been invited have not been as, you know, polarizing as far as ideology. You know, they're not there's not a Democratic equivalent of QAnon, at least not right now. But, <laughs> you know, the Democrats are saying, yeah, we'll we'll invite Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren And, you know, I'm sure if ALC wants to come, I'm sure that the candidates would love to have her because she is very popular, even though, you know, on the conservative side or even in the middle, she makes people nervous. Because, again, we've been saying all along, this is not about really changing many minds. There may be a few people in the center, those suburban white women that we talked about earlier and their their college-educated, fellow college-educated husbands that are um, perhaps persuadable, perhaps those people who did not vote for Trump but are open to voting for Purdue or Leffler. But for the most part, this is about turnout. Well, Riley, of course, we have not seen any of the more polarizing Democrats like a Bernie Sanders or an AOC down here. Uh, And Biden, in some ways, is a much safer uh, choice, right? Uh, It's hard to pin him as a radical liberal. You don't even see uh, uh, commercials that are trying to make the case that uh, Joe Biden is is going to somehow adopt a, a strong radical liberal agenda. It's mostly about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Uh, it's so Biden's the moderate, uh, and uh, he's a bit safer. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think we can see that in the fact that Biden got about 100,000 more votes than John Ossoff did in the general election. Biden is definitely more on the moderate side. And even though that these races are not about turning out moderate and independent voters, you still you still want to appeal to that side. And I think it'll just make, you know, people more comfortable with the Democratic Party platform if they have Biden, who's this kind of more moderate figure, as opposed to, like Tia said, this more um the farther left side of the Democratic Party. Okay, let's do this. Uh, Greg Bluestein is back from his brief conversation with Kelly Leffler. Uh, he's just gotten back into his car. I feel like I'm an anchor at Channel 2 News. We go live to Greg Bluestein <laughs> at an early voting location in the city of Atlanta. But let's do this. Let's get our first break out of the show uh, of the show out of the way, and we'll come back and we'll ask Greg Bluestein what he learned from Kelly Leffler just minutes ago. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Adam Van Brimmer, Savannah Morning News, Tia Mitchell, AJC Washington reporter, uh, Riley Bunch, who reports for uh, newspapers across the state for CNHI News, and our Wednesday regular Greg Bluestein uh, is with us as well. All right, Greg, you just talked to Kelly Leffler. She, she had just voted. Uh, what did she have to say? What did you ask her? And what did she say in response? So a few developments here. Um, the first is that she's been seen as kind of a last-ditch 
um, supporter of, of President Trump's electoral challenge if it goes to January 6th with the House and Senate both maybe making formal objections um, to, to Joe Biden's electors. There's several House members, including Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, who plan to, um, to raise objections. But there's no one in the Senate yet. So I asked her whether or not she was going to join, um, join in that challenge. She says she hasn't decided yet that her focus is on January 5th. Uh, January 6th is a long way out, she said, and there's a lot to play out between now and then. Um, she also is not yet acknowledging Joe Biden's victory, even though Senator Mitch McConnell and other leading Republicans have done so. My focus right now is on my race, she said, and then she pivoted to an attack on Reverend Warnock. And she said that um, COVID relief, a, a package deal, is on the doorstep. That she, I know we've, we've already talked about this, but she's mentioned how close um, senators are to getting some sort of relief package that can pass uh, before the year's out or, or, or before Joe Biden is inaugurated as president. Um, and she plans to go back to Washington to, to join that vote. Okay, so Greg and then Tia, I'd love to get you both in on this one as a starting point. Uh, uh, so Greg, as you just said, uh, Mitch McConnell yesterday finally congratulated uh, Biden, said you're the president-elect. Uh, and then we have learned that he, in private conversations, talked to his Republican colleagues in the Senate and urged them not to get involved in what member, House members like a Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, like Mo Brooks from Alabama, are planning to do, which is to challenge the authenticity of the Electoral College vote uh, on January 6th. So, Greg, in an odd way, uh, Leffler is kind of caught between what President Trump is trying to do, which is continue calling this election a fraud, and her leader, Mitch McConnell, who is pouring millions of dollars into her race to get her elected, uh, and there she is trapped in the middle, which is not an unusual place for Republicans to find themselves in one way or another these days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, people close to, close to her have told me that she does not plan to join this challenge whatsoever. And so I was a little surprised um, that she kind of hedged her answer, but it does reflect that 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 continuing dynamic for Republicans. They feel like they cannot do anything to alienate President Trump right now, to ostracize him, because one tweet from him, one false word, whatever it might be, uh, could really sink their chances at winning this runoff if if he tries to if he tells his loyal base um, that he has problems with either of the senators. And, and we have to remember this this. Um, ratification of the Electoral College vote. The House ratifies the presidential vote. The Senate ratifies the vice presidential vote. And then if there are objections, that's when both chambers can get involved. So, but the timing, that ratification is January 6th, a day after Leffler and Purdue do not need Donald Trump any longer. So, do I think Leffler and Purdue are going to go around uh, screaming to the hills between now and January 5th that they plan on going along with the Electoral College vote? No, because they don't want to tick off the president between now and January 5th. But do I think they're willing to break tradition and break with Mitch McConnell, who they'll be much more afraid of come January 6th? I don't think so. Adam? Yeah, that's... That's interesting because let's let's be honest here. McConnell's not going to pull money if, if they decide to to go. McConnell wants to keep this majority in the Senate, so he's going to continue to pour money in there. The interesting thing for me with um, with with the two senators and 
Donald Trump was, let's go back to that rally in Valdosta a couple weeks ago. There was a lot of a lot of things came out of that rally, but the one thing that really resonated with me was when David Perdue was attempting to speak and was basically mm-hmm. being shouted down by the by the people in the crowd, basically telling him to back the president, back the president's challenge to the election. If they expect the only the only path they have to win is to get the base out and to get the base out en masse. And if they do anything to alienate Donald Trump, that's going to cost them votes. And in a, in a race that is going to be razor thin, they can't do that. They are in a bad spot. No question. Going off what Adam said, you know, we know what happens when Republicans alienate Donald Trump here. We've seen it with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We've seen it a little bit, you know, with um, Governor Brian Kemp. He is the new target of Donald Trump's attacks. And just with the sheer fact, exactly what Adam said, that Purdue, who has not come out against Donald Trump, you know, has not conceded that Joe, Joe Biden is the president-elect, was, you know, shouted at as he was on stage by the crowd to back the president. Um, Senators Purdue and Leffler know what will happen if they go against, you know, President Trump right now. And it, it, it wouldn't be good. All right. So I want to throw out something. And Adam, you're the right person for me to ask you about this. And I I know it comes kind of out of the blue. Um, As Joe Biden said uh, yesterday when he came here, I mean, he's got a lot of reasons to be thankful that for to Georgia voters for what they did. So and there are a lot of people like Stacey Abrams, like Keisha Lance Bottoms, who are going to have a good amount of clout uh, when Georgia, when their cities, certainly when the city of Atlanta and parts of the state really need the president's attention. But but Adam, if you've got a if you've got a congressman as you do down there in the first district who has continued to challenge the authenticity of president elect Biden's victory, uh, t- talking about it as fraud, um, to what extent is is, is the first district going to have a hard time getting the ear of the White House when it needs help? on funding for projects that the people of the district want to do. And, and, and maybe there are enough Democrats around the state to counterbalance that, but I can't wonder if it is help but wonder if at a certain point it's counterproductive for a lot of these Republicans to keep fighting the outcome of this election. That's one view, and it's certainly legitimate, but I think the one thing that everybody needs to keep in mind is that Savannah is home to one of the largest economic drivers in the state. You know, the port yeah. of Savannah, the harbor deepening, a billion dollars. Uh, Savannah, you know, if you look at the projections, Savannah is going to be one of the busiest, or it already is one of the busiest ports in, in the United States. But it will, it could very well surpass everything except for probably Los Angeles within the next 10 years. And the port is expanding and doing all it can to be prepared for that as the harbor deepens. So I think that as, as the... As Savannah goes and the port goes, so goes Georgia to a certain extent. And I think, I, and even as uh, Representative Carter continues to, um, I guess maybe for lack of a better word, bloviate uh, about um, the integrity of the election, I don't think in the long run it hurts us. And quite frankly, knowing knowing Buddy as long as I have is is when this all finally blows over, he will do everything he can in order to help his constituents and help the state. So I don't know that I don't know that I agree with the, the premise that you're making, Bill, but it's certainly something to to keep in mind. 
Okay, I, it'll be interesting. I, I do understand that, but it's a, it's just a question I've been wondering about. Uh, Greg, uh, Amelia just sent me an article that the Augusta Post just, uh, Augusta Chronicle just posted. A federal judge in Augusta will hear arguments Thursday in a new lawsuit challenging election procedures used in Georgia for the presidential election and attempting to alter them ahead of January 5th for the Senate runoff. It was the 12th district congressional uh, uh, Republican uh, committee, the 12th district Republican committee. Uh, they contend the procedures used to process absentee ballots could enable massive fraud in the runoffs, and a judge is going to hear this case uh, tomorrow. So, Greg, uh, we're going to continue seeing these lawsuits and uh, uh, seeing uh, uh, efforts to uh, discount the validity of absentee ballots moving into the J- January 5th runoff. You're exactly right. And these are all part of an attempt to discredit uh, incoming president-elect Joe Biden's administration uh, and to keep alive some of these claims um, so that Republicans in Georgia who don't want to acknowledge Joe Biden's victory don't have to because they can say that there's still legal claims pending. Um, I pressed chairman of the Republican Party, David Schaefer, on this on Monday when they had their sort of symbolic slate of of electors voting um, at the same time the Democrat had a legitimate vote for their electors. And he kept them saying, we won't concede until everything plays out in court. And as long as there's still lawsuits pending, even if they're thrown out, um, they're not going to budge on this one. Um, so we just about, though, run out of this, this string of things that can happen. Uh, uh, Greg, talk a little bit about this rump delegation of Republican electors led by the Republican State Party chair, David Schaefer, who came to the Capitol as the legitimate uh, group of Biden electors met in the state Senate and kind of went off to a room and sat there as if they might, in fact, end up being a legitimate group of pro-Trump electors. What a weird day, Bill. I, I was I was in the Senate gallery watching, set to watch the, the actual legitimate vote for Democrats. And um, I talked to some of the Republican elector candidates, I guess you can call them, um, who said, yeah, there's no plan to try to do a kind of a rump, uh, a rump session, as you called it. Uh, but they got a phone call late Sunday night to be at the Capitol uh, Monday morning. And there were some alternates ready for those who couldn't be there. Um, and this was not a fringe group. This was the chair of the Republican Party of Georgia. There was at least two state senators. There's party officials and party leaders. And um, yeah, as as the Democrats were voting upstairs, Stacey Abrams, Nakima Williams, all sorts of party leaders, Senator uh, Mayor Van Johnson of Savannah, uh, they were downstairs in a locked, closed door. Um, a doorman told me, one of the officials told me that it was just, oh, it's just simply an education meeting, of course, lying. Um, and they voted <laughs> on their own slate, which David Schaefer said was, you know, just necessary to keep, keep alive litigation. He was trying to downplay it. But, but clearly what we saw here was... Republicans attempting to push their own symbolic slate of, of electors. Uh, they won't go anywhere. They won't get anywhere. Um, the, the, the vote was the authentic vote happened with the Senate Democrats. Uh, sorry, in the, in the Senate chamber with the Democrats. But still another sign of how Republicans are, are trying to discredit Joe Biden. Uh, Riley, we should point out that Georgia wasn't the only state where a group of Trump electors who had not, in fact, whose states had not won the election, uh, did the same thing. So there was at least some uh, coordination of all all of this. But uh, we've really reached the point where this is becoming increasingly futile. And uh, you've got to wonder what the end game is, Riley. 
Well, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, you know, that the whole argument on the side of the GOP is that the laws were not followed. There was illegal action being taken, you know, all these kind of false allegations when they, you know, pull stunts like um, going into the room and trying to cast these ballots, which is not following, you know, the Constitution and things that should be happening. And it, I think it is also indicative of you know, this is a fight that's come down to a state level, and it's going to be seen at the state house as well. All right, Adam, let me give you the last uh, comment before we go to a break. You mentioned the word endgame there, and I think that's the one that keeps coming back for me is, is when you look at what's going on in Georgia right now, where we are, we are seeing a division in the Republican Party within the state. And what is David Schaefer positioning himself to do? What are some of these lead um, Georgia General Assembly Republicans positioning themselves to do? I was in Athens last week for the biennial, and there's definitely a lot of energy. Uh, there's two there's two factions there, and it's just it's you wonder when they mount something like this if this is not going if this is not projecting ahead to to 2022, and are we going to see challenges in certain constitutional offices, and is this going to play out and really divide the party within the state? All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, Tia, I'm really eager to hear your uh, observations about what's happening with a COVID relief package on the Hill, which I know you're following closely. Uh, We'll talk about that and more. uh, But first, uh, these messages. A quick program note before we continue with our conversation. Uh, Tomorrow... I'm going to have a conversation that I've really been looking forward to for a long time. We're going to be talking to Gerald Walker, a writer and essayist, an African-American who teaches at Emerson College in Boston, but also has been writing for any number of national publications for quite a while. He has a new collection of essays out called How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, obviously a very provocative title. What's fascinating about Walker as you read his book is he goes out of his way to puncture stereotypes that we have about the African-Americans in our communities, as well as how whites perceive African-Americans, how African-Americans perceive white people. And uh, he writes with humor and grace. And I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So I hope you'll join us tomorrow for How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, uh, Gerald Walker. Okay, we're back. Tia Mitchell is here, Riley Bunch, Adam Van Brimmer, and Greg Bluestein. Um, Tia, uh, we know that, that we the Republicans and Democrats on the Hill have been struggling for weeks and weeks and weeks to get some kind of package that they can compromise on before they get out of here now. Uh, the deadline is the end of this week. And it appears they are moving close to a deal. Yes? Yes, we have some positive signs. You know, the four top lawmakers, Speaker Pelosi, uh, leader McConnell and then the minority leaders Schumer and McCarthy were meeting all in the same room, which has not happened in a really long time. And they made comments late last night about how they don't want to leave without some type of coronavirus relief. You know, um, the talks have stalled for a lot of reasons, um, political reasons over the last not just weeks, but months. But now they're up against a hard deadline, because if they go home in recess, 
um, some programs will expire before Congress comes back. And that'll be devastating to a lot of Americans who are relying on those safety nets. So there's a lot of energy to get something done, but, you know, it's delicate right now. Um, The reason why it's tied to the government shutdown, which right now happens on Friday, is that just, again, creates that deadline and that incentive to wrap it all together and get something done. Um, The question now is, I think there will be something, again, as we mentioned You know, there's this bipartisan group of senators that kind of came out with a compromise bill that has a lot of stuff that could get wide support, but it leaves out things like checks to every American, liability for businesses and state and local money for government that is more controversial. So that's where the hangup is right now. So uh, the majority leader. McConnell told reporters uh, just yesterday, we are not leaving here without a COVID package. It's not going to happen, however long it takes. Um, Republicans have been pushing for Congress to pass about a $500 billion aid bill. Democrats, in the meantime, have been talking about almost twice that much, $908 billion. Uh, and, and there are some Republicans who are on board with that. Tia, you want to? Uh, ju- is it bigger than that, Tia? Yeah, the the House, which is run by Democrats, their most recent kind of offer sure. was two point two trillion with a T. Um, the Senate was pushing for five hundred billion with a B, and now kind of the compromise number is that nine hundred and eight billion. You know, if you okay. add in more, it could get more to one trillion. It's looking like the final might be about one trillion with a T. What complicates all of this is the president suddenly weighed in. There was not going to be the plan, the, the, the compromise they were working toward. And Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary from the Trump administration, was part of these talks. Uh, they, they did not include a check, an additional check uh, for individual Americans. Right, Tia? Right. As of right now, um, the, this bipartisan kind of compromise bill that was proposed, and it's kind of the starting point, does not include checks for Americans. But um, I think there's energy around that. Um, it looks like it'll be between 600 and $1,000, but that the, the amounts will go down for people who make more money. Um, that's what is being discussed. But again, there is right now that is not on the table um, as far as what has been negotiated. Well, the reason I mentioned that, uh, Adam, is that these negotiations were moving forward. I mean, they were not moving rapidly, and there were still many, many obstacles. And the president, who stayed out of this almost entirely, suddenly dropped uh, this uh, uh, notion that he insists they have at least a $600 check to every American, which, of course, the president would sign, as he did uh, the last checks that went out uh, to individuals. And for a little while, that really uh, confused the negotiations as they were trying to move forward, Adam. Yes, and that's, again, let's go back to the talk of endgame. Is that, uh, is that President Trump trying to salvage what he can before he leaves office with the idea of, of running for office again? Or... I, or did somebody just get his ear and talk him into it, or did he see it on 
Fox News. Somebody advocated for it for Fox News, and five minutes later he tweets about it. Who knows? Who knows with this president? But in terms of of a stimulus check to every American, I, I, Tia, Greg, Riley, you, you may have been paying, may have a little bit better perspective on this. But is that necessary? Is that going to drive the economy? I guess it's the Christmas season, and everybody needs all the money they can get. But I don't know what the general population feels about such a move. Well, I mean, everybody's looking for whatever they can get, I think. But, Greg, this has been an issue for the president. This hasn't been something that we have any reason to think that uh, polling shows the American people have been uh, uh, demanding. This is President Trump, Greg, uh, once again saying, uh, here, let me offer a gift to the to the citizens of this country. Yeah. And look, it's becoming you, you can already see, see it seeping into the campaign trail, too. As I was driving back from Joe Biden's event yesterday, I saw a giant Democratic placard saying, vote Democratic, get $1,200. Um, and it said in the bottom in small letters, this is not a bribe or inducement. Oh. It's it's just if Democrats vote for, for for these two Senate candidates, they might be able to push through a stimulus, a direct stimulus check as well. So you're seeing this rhetoric from both sides of the aisle, especially being compounded with the Senate runoffs. Riley, are you hearing this come up in conversa- in, in on the campaign trail much? Absolutely. I think it also, you know, kind of just demonstrates that the outcome of these Senate runoffs are going to have a very big impact on the Biden administration. So if the Democratic candidates win these runoffs, he'll have a, you know, easier time, probably a breezy time trying to pass his you know, COVID relief promises that he put on the campaign trail. But if Republicans win these runoffs and then he won't. He will have a much bigger challenge to live up to all these COVID promises. So it's definitely something that has come down to the Senate runoff, as a lot of issues have. And I just wanted to add that, um, as both Riley and Greg just mentioned, the checks themselves are popular, particularly among Democratic voters. But the checks themselves, um, for those who are low income, are not just popular, they're necessary um, if you talk to folks who study that kind of thing and look at the usefulness. Now, yes, again, for those who are higher income, that's where when they studied the first stimulus check, they said it it went less to goods and and products and went more to savings. Um, But for the lower income folks, they're not just taking the check and saying, oh, I didn't really need it. I'm going to put it in my bank account. They're paying bills and buying school materials for students who are now at home and um, making sure their rent can be paid. So, And I think that's proven and documented. And that's why, again, in the second round, it won't be just a flat amount for everyone. The, the cutoff will be lower as far as when it starts to taper off. For that reason, you, I think you, you hit upon, Adam. But I, I want to make sure that we don't leave people believing that those checks don't make a difference for the neediest uh, Americans. All right. Thank you for um, making that point. I think it's really important. Um, Let me move on uh, for a minute, if I I can, here as we uh, start to uh, uh, run out of time for today's show. Um, Greg, we are now uh, in the uh, second day. Second day, I think that's really third day. We had the first shipment of uh, vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines, came into Georgia on Monday. Um, 
on Monday, we did a show about COVID and the vaccine. And at that point, the Department of Public Health was being very quiet. They were not giving us any information at all about how many doses of the vaccine we were going to get initially. They do have a very elaborate plan for distribution, which we did uh, talk about to some extent. But, Greg, now we learn that this state, which is 10 million-plus people, the first allocation of the vaccine uh, was only 84, just about 85,000 doses. And um, that's a, a great beginning, but we have a very long way to go, Greg, in this state before we're going to see a significant first of the first phase people, the, the, the healthcare workers and nursing home uh, residents and workers. We have a long way to go on this, Greg. Yeah, and as you have mentioned on the show, it's going to be months um, until until uh, the the broadest swath of Georgians are, are inoculated. Um, there are going to be another 170,000 or so Moderna vaccines available as soon as next week, if if approved mm-hmm. by the FDA. So you'll see a lot more vaccines, but it's a long process. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the the first round will be going to healthcare workers, nursing home patients, and healthcare providers, and just getting them inoculated is going to be is going to take weeks. And really, Riley, just to make the point about how dangerous COVID nineteen remains, uh, even though the vaccine is starting to get some distribution, we now know that Barry Loudermilk uh, becomes one more member of the congressional delegation to have tested positive. We're told he's had only mild symptoms uh, at this point, to the best of my knowledge, um, but he joins a, a group of. Uh, of uh, uh, Republicans uh, in the delegation, Riley, who have uh, contracted COVID-19. Yeah, you know, it's, I think, what, it was like the fourth um, Republican delegate that contracted COVID-19. And um, as we see these more higher officials in Congress on contracting COVID-19, we hit more than 10,000 COVID deaths in Georgia last week, which is a really startling number. And just to hammer home Greg's point that it's going to take months for the public to get this, we also learned during the vaccine briefing that there's going to be priority levels of healthcare workers in the first round, which is just shows how extended this process is going to be. You know, people really need to continue to stay home and do their um, social distancing and, you know, to get this under control. Uh, Tia, somebody like a louder milk goes into self-quarantine at, a, at this time, as have some of his colleagues, right? Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Now we do have Democrats in the Georgia delegation who've had COVID. It's just prior yes. to their congressional yes. service, you know, Kwanzaa Hall and Nakima Williams. Um, but yep. I think for the Republican side, you know, some of those cases they haven't been the most transparent about, but we know Republicans have been on the campaign trail and exposed to others with COVID. And that's been a concern. All right. You get the last word on this show, by the way. The other COVID story is that a Santa Claus down in Long County uh, may have exposed as many, and his wife may have exposed as many as 50 children to uh, uh, COVID-19 during a an event for Santa. So COVID-19 continues to be an issue. Greg Bluestein, Adam Van Brimmer, Tia Mitchell, Riley Bunch, thank you. We're completely out of time. See you again tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and think about when you're going to go vote in the runoff. Bye-bye, everybody.